Section 25 of Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation, 1838-1839. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation, 1838-1839. By Francis Ann Kimball. Dear E., we shall leave this place next Thursday or Friday, and there will be an end to this record. Meantime, I am fulfilling all sorts of last duties, and especially those of taking leave of my neighbors, by whom the neglect of a farewell visit would be taken much amiss. On Sunday, I rode to a place called Frederica to call on a Mrs. Blank, who came to see me some time ago. I rode straight through the island by the main road that leads to the little church. How can I describe to you the exquisite spring beauty that is now adorning these woods, the variety of the fresh newborn foliage, the fragrance of the sweet wild perfumes that fill the air? Honeysuckles twine round every tree. The ground is covered with a low white blossomed shrub more fragrant than lilies of the valley. The acacias are swinging their silver censers under the green roof of these wood temples. Every stump is like a classical altar to the sylvan gods, garlanded with flowers. Every post or stick or slight stem, like a bacante's thrissus, twined with wreaths of ivy and wild vine waving in the tepid wind. Beautiful butterflies flicker like flying flowers among the bushes, and gorgeous birds like winged jewels dart from the bowels. And, and a huge ground snake slid like a dark ribbon across the path while I was stopping to enjoy all this deliciousness, and so I became less enthusiastic and cantered on past the little deserted churchyard with a new-made grave beneath its grove of noble oaks, and a little farther on reached Mrs. Blank's cottage, half hidden in the midst of ruins and roses. This Frederica is a very strange place. It was once a town, the town, the metropolis of the island. The English, when they landed on the coast of Georgia in the war, destroyed this tiny place, and it has never been built up again. Mrs. Blank's and one other house are the only dwellings that remain in this curious wilderness of dismantled, crumbling gray walls, compassionately cloaked with a thousand profuse and graceful creepers. These are the only ruins properly so called, except those of Fort Putnam, that I have ever seen in this land of contemptuous youth. I hail these picturesque groups and masses with the feelings of a European, to whom ruins are like a sort of relations. In my country, ruins are like a minor chord in music. Here they are like a discord. They are not the relics of time, but the results of violence. They recall no valuable memories of a remote past, and are mere encumbrances to the busy present. Evidently they are out of place in America, except on St. Simon's Island, between this savage selvage of civilization and the great Atlantic deep. These heaps of rubbish and roses would have made the fortune of a sketcher, but I imagine the snakes have it all to themselves here and are undisturbed by camp-stools, white umbrellas, and ejaculatory young ladies. I sat for a long time with Mrs. Blank, and a friend of hers staying with her, a Mrs. Blank, lately from Florida. 
the latter seemed to me a remarkable woman her conversation was extremely interesting she had been stopping at brunswick at the hotel where dr blank murdered young blank and said that the mingled ferocity and blackguardism of the men who frequented the house had induced her to cut short her stay there and come on to her friend mrs blank's we spoke of that terrible crime which had occurred only the day after she left brunswick and both ladies agreed that there was not the slightest chance of dr blank's being punished in any way for the murder he had committed that shooting down a man who had offended you was part of the morals and manners of the southern gentry and that the circumstance was one of quite too frequent occurrence to cause any sensation even in the small community where it obliterated one of the principal members of the society if the accounts given by these ladies of the character of the planters in this part of the south may be believed they must be as idle arrogant ignorant dissolute and ferocious as that medieval chivalry to which they are fond of comparing themselves and these are southern women and should know the people among whom they live we had a long discussion on the subject of slavery and they took as usual the old ground of justifying the system where it was administered with kindness and indulgence it is not surprising that women should regard the question from this point of view they are very seldom just and are generally treated with more indulgence than justice by men they are very patient of my strong expressions of reprobation of the whole system and mrs blank bidding me good-bye said that for aught she could tell i might be right and might have been led down here by providence to be the means of some great change in the condition of the poor colored people i rode home pondering on the strange fate that has brought me to this place so far from where i was born this existence so different in all its elements from that of my early years and former associations if i believed mrs blank's parting words i might perhaps verify them perhaps i may yet verify although i do not believe them on my return home i found a most enchanting bundle of flowers sent to me by mrs blank pomegranate blossoms roses honeysuckle everything that blooms two months later with us in pennsylvania i told you i had a great desire to visit little st simon's and the day before yesterday i determined to make an exploring expedition thither i took blank and the children little imagining what manner of day's work was before me six men rode us in the lily and israel brought the wood wagon after us in a flat our navigation was a very intricate one all through sea swamps and marshes mud banks and sand banks with great white shells and bleaching bones stuck upon sticks to mark the channel we landed on this forest in the sea by quash's house the only human residence on the island it was larger and better and more substantial than the negro huts in general and he seemed proud and pleased to do the honors to us thence we set off by my desire in the wagon through the woods to the beach road there was none save the rough clearing that the men cut with their axes before us as we went slowly on presently we came to a deep dry ditch over which there was no visible means of proceeding israel told me if we would sit still he would undertake to drive the wagon into and out of it and so indeed he did but how he did it is more than i can explain to you now or could explain to myself then a less powerful creature than montreal could never have dragged us through 
and when we presently came to a second rather worse edition of the same, I insisted upon getting out and crossing it on foot. I walked half a mile while the wagon was dragged up and down the deep gully and lifted bodily over some huge trunks of fallen trees. The wood through which we now drove was all on fire, smoking, flaming, crackling, and burning round us. The sun glared upon us from the cloudless sky, and the air was one cloud of sand-flies and mosquitoes. I covered both my children's faces with veils and handkerchiefs, and repented not a little in my own breast of the rashness of my undertaking. The back of Israel's coat was covered so thick with mosquitoes that one could hardly see the cloth, and I felt as if we should be stifled if our way lay much longer through this terrible wood. Presently we came to another impassable place, and again got out of the wagon, leaving Israel to manage it as best he could. I walked with the baby in my arms a quarter of a mile, and then was so overcome with the heat that I sat down in the burning wood, on the floor of ashes, till the wagon came up again. I put the children and blank into it, and continued to walk till we came to a ditch in a tract of salt marsh over which Israel drove triumphantly and I partly jumped and was partly hauled over, having declined the entreaties of several of the men to let them lie down and make a bridge with their bodies for me to walk over. At length we reached the skirt of that tremendous wood, to my unspeakable relief, and came upon the white sand hillocks of the beach. The trees were all strained crooked from the constant influence of the sea-blast. The coast was a fearful-looking stretch of dismal trackless sand and the ocean lay boundless and awful beyond the wild and desolate beach, from which we were now only divided by a patch of low, coarse-looking bush growing as thick and tangled as heather, and so stiff and compact that it was hardly possible to drive through it. Yet in spite of this, several lads who had joined our train rushed off into it in search of rabbits, though Israel called repeatedly to them, warning them of the danger of rattlesnakes. We drove at last down to the smooth sea-sand, and here, outstripping our guides, was barred farther progress by a deep gully down which it was impossible to take the wagon. Israel, not knowing the beach well, was afraid to drive round the mouth of it, and so it was determined that from this point we should walk home under his guidance. I sat in the wagon while he constructed a rough footbridge of bits of wood and broken planks for us over the narrow chasm and he then took Montreal out of the wagon and tied him behind it, leaving him for the other men to take charge of when they should arrive at this point. And so, having mightily desired to see the coast of Little St. Simon's Island, I did see it, thoroughly. For I walked a mile and a half round it, over beds of sharp shells, through swamps half knee-deep, poor little Blank stumping along with dogged heroism, and Israel carrying the baby except at one deep malpaso, when I took the baby and he carried blank. And so, through the wood round Quash's house, where we arrived almost fainting with fatigue and heat, and where we rested but a short time, for we had to start almost immediately to save the tide home. I called at Mr. Blank's on my way back, to return him his son's manuscript, which I had in the boat for that purpose. I sent Jack, who had come to meet me with the horses, home, being too tired to attempt riding. And covered with mud literally up to my knees, I was obliged to lie down ignominiously all the afternoon to rest. 
and now I will give you a curious illustration of the utter subserviency of slaves. It seems that by taking the tide in proper season and going by boat, all that horrible wood journey might have been avoided, and we could have reached the beach with perfect ease in half the time. But because, being of course absolutely ignorant of this, I had expressed a desire to go through the wood, not a syllable of remonstrance was uttered by anyone. And the men not only underwent the labor of cutting a path for the wagon and dragging it through and over all the impediments we encountered, but allowed me and the children to traverse that burning wood, rather than tell me that by waiting and taking another way I could get to the sea. When I expressed my astonishment at their not having remonstrated against my order, and explained how I could best achieve the purpose I had in view, the sole answer I got, even from Israel, was, Mrs. Say-so, so me do. Mrs. Say-me go through the wood, me no tell Mrs. go another way. You see, my dear E., one had need bethink oneself what orders one gives, when one has the misfortune to be despotic. How sorry I am that I have been obliged to return that narrative of Mr. Blank's without asking permission to copy it, which I did not do because I should not have been able to find the time to do it. We go away the day after tomorrow. All the main incidents of the disaster the newspapers have made you familiar with, the sudden and appalling loss of that fine vessel laden with the very flower of the South. There seems hardly to be a family in Georgia and South Carolina that had not some of its members on board that ill-fated ship. You know it was a sort of party of pleasure more than anything else, the usual annual trip to the north for change of air and scene, for the gaieties of Newport and Saratoga that all the wealthy southern people invariably take every summer. The weather had been calm and lovely, and dancing, talking, and laughing, as if they were in their own drawing-rooms, they had passed the time away till they all separated for the night. At the first sound of the exploding boiler, Mr. Blank jumped up, and in his shirt and trousers ran on deck. The scene was one of horrible confusion. Women screaming, men swearing, the deck strewn with broken fragments of all descriptions, the vessel leaning frightfully to one side, and everybody running hither and thither in the darkness, in horror and dismay. He had left Georgia with Mrs. Blank and Mrs. Blank, the two children and one of the female servants of these ladies under his charge. He went immediately to the door of the ladies' cabin and called Mrs. Blank. They were all there, half-dressed. He bade them dress as quickly as possible and be ready to follow and obey him. He returned almost instantly and led them to the side of the vessel where, into the boats that had already been lowered, desperate men and women were beginning to swarm, throwing themselves out of the sinking ship. He bade Mrs. Blank jump down into one of these boats which was only in the possession of two sailors. She instantly obeyed him, and he threw her little boy to the men after her. He then ordered Mrs. Blank, with the negro woman, to throw themselves off the vessel into the boat and, with Mrs. Blank's baby in his arms, sprang after them. His foot touched the gunwale of the boat, and he fell into the water. But, recovering himself instantly, he clambered into the boat, which he then peremptorily ordered the men to set adrift, in spite of the shrieks and cries and commands and entreaties of the frantic crowds who were endeavoring to get into it. The men obeyed him, and, rowing while he steered, 
they presently fell astern of the ship in the midst of the darkness and tumult and terror another boat laden with people was near them for some time they saw the heart-rending spectacle of the sinking vessel and the sea strewn with mattresses seats planks etc to which people were clinging floating and shrieking for succor in the dark water all round them but they gradually pulled further and further out of the horrible chaos of despair and with the other boat still consorting with them rowed on they watched from a distance the piteous sight of the ill-fated steamer settling down the gay girdle of light that marked the line of her beautiful saloons and cabins gradually sinking nearer and nearer to the blackness in which they were presently extinguished and the ship with all its precious human freight engulfed all but the handful left in those two open boats to brave the dangers of that terrible coast they were somewhere off the north carolina shore which when the daylight dawned they could distinctly see with its ominous line of breakers and inhospitable perilous coast the men had continued rowing all night and as the summer sun rose flaming over their heads the task of pulling the boat became dreadfully severe still they followed the coast mr blank looking out for any opening creek or small inlet that might give them a chance of landing in safety the other boat rowed on at some little distance from them all the morning and through the tremendous heat of the middle day they toiled on without a mouthful of food without a drop of water at length towards the afternoon the men at the oars said they were utterly exhausted and could row no longer and that mr blank must steer the boat ashore with wonderful power of command he prevailed on them to continue their afflicting labor the terrible blazing sun pouring on all their unsheltered heads had almost annihilated them but still there lay between them and the land those fearful foaming ridges and the women and children if not the men themselves seemed doomed to inevitable death in the attempt to surmount them suddenly they perceived that the boat that had kept them company was about to adventure itself in the perilous experiment of landing mr blank kept his boat's head steady the men rested on their oars and watched the result of the fearful risk they were themselves about to run they saw the boat enter the breakers they saw her whirled round and capsized and then they watched slowly emerging and dragging themselves out of the foaming sea some and only some of the people that they knew the boat contained mr blank fortified with this terrible illustration of the peril that awaited them again besought them to row yet for a little while longer along the coast in search of some possible place to take the boat safely to the beach promising at sunset to give up the search and again the poor men resumed their toil but the line of leaping breakers stretched along the coast as far as i could see and at length the men declared they could labor no longer and insisted that mr blank should steer them to shore he then said that he would do so but they must take some rest before encountering the peril which awaited them and for which they might require whatever remaining strength they could command he made the men leave the oars and lie down to sleep for a short while and then giving the helm to one of them did the same himself when they were thus a little refreshed with this short rest he prepared to take the boat into the breakers he laid mrs blank's baby on her breast and wrapped a shawl round and round her body so as to secure the child to it and said in the event of the boat capsizing he would endeavor to save her and her child 
Mrs. Blank and her boy he gave in charge to one of the sailors, and the colored woman, who was with her, to the other, and they promised solemnly, in case of misadventure to the boat, to do their best to save these helpless creatures, and so they turned, as the sun was going down, the bows of the boat to the terrible shore. They rose two of the breakers safely, but then the oar of one of the men was struck from his hand, and in an instant the boat whirled round and turned over. Mr. Blank instantly struck out to seize Mrs. Blank, but she had sunk, and though he dived twice he could not see her. At last he felt her hair floating loose with his foot, and seizing hold of it, grasped her securely, and swam with her to shore. While in the act of doing so, he saw the man who had promised to save the colored woman making a loan for the beach. And even then, in that extremity, he had power of command enough left to drive the fellow back to seek her which he did, and brought her safe to land. The other man kept his word of taking care of Mrs. Blank, and the latter never released her grasp of her child's wrist, which bore the mark of her agony for weeks after their escape. They reached the sands, and Mrs. Blank's shawl having been unwound, her child was found laughing on her bosom. But hardly had they had time to thank God for their deliverance when Mr. Blank fell fainting on the beach, and Mrs. Blank, who told me this, said that, for one dreadful moment, they thought that the preserver of all their lives had lost his own in the terrible exertion and anxiety that he had undergone. He revived, however, and crawling a little further up the beach, they burrowed for warmth and shelter as well as they could in the sand, and lay there till the next morning, when they sought and found succor. You cannot imagine, my dear E., how strikingly throughout this whole narrative the extraordinary power of Mr. Blank's character makes itself felt. The immediate obedience that he obtained from women whose terror might have made them unmanageable, and men whose selfishness might have defied his control. The wise, though painful firmness which enabled him to order the boat away from the side of the perishing vessel, in spite of the pity that he felt for the many, in attempting to succor whom he could only have jeopardized the few whom he was bound to save the wonderful influence he exercised over the poor oarsman whose long protracted labor postponed to the last possible moment the terrible risk of their landing the firmness courage humanity wisdom and presence of mind of all his preparations for their final tremendous risk and the authority which he was able to exercise while struggling in the foaming water for his own life and that of the woman and child he was saving over the man who was proving false to a similar sacred charge all these admirable traits are most miserably transmitted to you by my imperfect account and when i assure you that his own narrative full as it necessarily was of the details of his own heroism was as simple modest and unpretending as it was interesting and touching i am sure you will agree with me that he must be a very rare man when i spoke with enthusiasm to his old father of his son's noble conduct and asked him if he was not proud of it his sole reply was, I am glad, madam, my son was not selfish. Now, E., I have often spoken with you and written to you of the disastrous effect of slavery upon the character of the white men implicated in it. Many among themselves feel and acknowledge it to the fullest extent, and no one more than myself can deplore that any human being I love should be subjected to such baneful influences. But the devil must have his due and men brought up in habits of peremptory command over their fellow-men, 
and under the constant apprehension of danger and awful necessity of immediate readiness to meet it acquire qualities precious to themselves and others in hours of supreme peril such as this man passed through saving by their exercise himself and all committed to his charge i know that the southern men are apt to deny the fact that they do live under an habitual sense of danger but a slave population coerced into obedience though unarmed and half-fed is a threatening source of constant insecurity and every southern woman to whom i have spoken on the subject has admitted to me that they live in terror of their slaves happy are such of them as have protectors like blank blank such men will best avoid and best encounter the perils that may assail them from the abject subject human element in the control of which their noble faculties are sadly and unworthily employed wednesday seventeenth april i rode to-day after breakfast to mrs blank's another of my neighbors who lives full twelve miles off during the last two miles of my expedition i had the white sand hillocks and blue line of the atlantic in view the house at which i called was a tumble-down barrack of a dwelling in the woods with a sort of poverty-stricken pretentious air about it like sundry proud planters dwellings that i have seen i was received by the sons as well as the lady of the house and could not but admire the lordly rather than manly indifference with which these young gentlemen in gay guard chains and fine attire played the gallants to me while filthy barefooted half-naked negro women brought in refreshments and stood all the while fanning the cake and sweetmeats and their young masters as if they had been all the same sort of stuff i felt ashamed for the lads the conversation turned upon dr blank's trial for there has been a trial as a matter of form and an acquittal as a matter of course and the gentleman said upon my expressing some surprise at the latter event that there could not be found in all georgia a jury who would convict him which says but little for the moral sense of all georgia from this most painful subject we fell into the brunswick canal and thereafter i took my leave and rode home i met my babies in the wood wagon and took blank up before me and gave her a good gallop home having reached the house with the appetite of a twenty-four miles ride i found no preparation for dinner and not so much as a boiled potato to eat and the sole reply to my famished and disconsolate exclamations was being that you order none missus i not know i had forgotten to order my dinner and my slaves unauthorized had not ventured to prepare any wouldn't a yankee have said well now you went off so uncommon quick i kind of guess you forgot all about dinner and have it all ready for me but my slaves durst not and so i fasted till some tea could be got for me end of section twenty five recording by james k white chula vista